0: Hi, readers, and welcome to episode 27 of Lost the Plot, the Tinted Edges monthly podcast all about books. I'm your host, Dang Harrod, and today we are going to be talking with an extremely special guest, my grandmother,
1: Barbara June Fletcher, about school libraries. Broadwood at this time had the paper mill where they did the recycling. And <laughs> a lot of the books on the library shelves came from the recycling.
0: Grandma will be telling us all about how she and my grandfather revitalised a country school library and opened it to the public. If you want to follow along and find out more information about all the topics discussed in this episode, you can check out the show notes on the Lost the Plot webpage at www.tintededges.com lost the plot. But first... Book updates. Okay, so the absolute, hands down, most exciting update was that I got to do my first ever live event. I interviewed two amazing historical fiction authors at Muse Bookshop in Kingston, Robin Cadwalader and Eleanor Limprecht, about their books The Book of Colours and The Passengers. I had So much fun thinking up questions to ask them about the things their books had in common, especially because their books were set 600 years apart. The novels had a surprising amount of overlap, though, and I especially love choosing passages for the authors to read, and I picked two passages where their leading female characters lose themselves in their work. Now, speaking of losing yourself, I was so thrilled to go along to the incredible Alice in Wonderland exhibition at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image, also known as ACMI, in Federation Square in Melbourne. Now, I don't want to give away too much about it because you should definitely get along yourself before it closes on the 7th of October 2018. However, I do want to tell you that it has an incredible interactive element and each visitor gets a special something that allows you to interact with the different exhibits. There's also a bit of a photo booth and I won't describe it. You can see for yourself the results in the show notes. Now, I also really want to talk about an incredible victory that took place at Harry Hartog. There was a fantasy trivia night to celebrate the launch of local Canberra author Lisa Cassidy's new novel, Heartfire. I rounded up my fantasy book club, which is full of some pretty competitive women, and we settled in for a bit of sport. We were a bit stumped for names for our team, but then I put forward a pun on one of our favorite female fantasy authors, and we ended up calling ourselves Tamora Fierce. The first round was a complete bust. It was epic fantasy, and my partner, who has read all the Brent Weeks and all the Brandon Sanderson you can think of, was actually at home, no good to us at all. We were probably lucky to have answered about half the questions on the page, so we were all pretty shocked that by the time the scores were read out, we were in second place. By the end of the second round, we'd crept up to first place, and by the end of the night, we had won with an outstanding 20-point lead. You can tell that book trivia is the only sport that I get this excited about. Anyway, Each of the six of us won a book pack, and I have to say, I think it was the most fun book launch I have been to, to date. Okay, so just one more update. You might remember our friend Sean Costello, who talked about short stories in his podcast Capital Yarns on episode 25. Well, Sean has launched a crowdfunding campaign for a second printed volume of short stories. Capital Yarns Volume 2 is available to support on Possible, and you can pledge for your copy via the link in the show notes. The big Books for the World news in Canberra in July was a street library rollercoaster ride. The news broke on social media and then later on on print media that the Lynham and O'Connor Little Library had been set on fire. Fire! There was community outrage and the library, which had been near the corner of Banksy and Wattle streets and was made out of an old fridge and had been at the location for about a year, somebody just set it on fire. It was unbelievable. A lot of people speculated about what kind of person would do that to a street library. But I have to say, one possible reason that gnawed at me a little bit is that this winter in Canberra has been really cold. There has been a lot of homelessness. Obviously, housing affordability and housing security is a big issue across the country at the moment. And it did strike me that perhaps somebody actually just wanted to keep warm. Either way, the street library was completely destroyed and the Canberra community rallied. The ruined street library has been replaced with not one but two new libraries. I dropped by to donate some books and the new libraries were already chock-a-block so make sure you go visit and take a book and leave a book. July was a big month for book news like most months and in particular there were plenty of book awards. The Ned Kelly Awards shortlist was announced and then the winners were announced late in August. There are three categories, and the winner for Best Fiction was Crossing the Lines by Solari Gentil. The winner for Best First Fiction was The Dark Lake by Sarah Bailey, and the award for True Crime is Unmaking a Murder, The Mysterious Death of Anna-Jane Cheney by Graham Archer. The winner was announced for the New South Wales State Library's National Biography Award, which was Judith Brett's biography called The Enigmatic Mr. Deacon, about Alfred Deacon, Australia's second Prime Minister. There has also been a lot of exciting Man Booker Prize news. The Golden Man Booker Prize, which was the prize for the best book over the last 50 years of Man Booker Prizes, was announced, and the winner is The English Patient by Michael Ondaatje. The novel won the Booker Prize originally in 1992, and I remember really enjoying it some time ago when I read it. The long list has been announced for the 2018 Man Booker Prize, and 13 books have been long listed. The authors are from the UK, USA, Canada, and Ireland, but sadly, no Aussies up for winning this year, and the winner will be announced on the 16th of October in 2018. Now, not All the award news is quite so cut and dry. After the fiasco of this year's Nobel Prize for Literature being cancelled and the Swedish Academy's implosion following sexual abuse scandals, an alternative Nobel Prize for Literature has been announced. The new Academy, which is made up of Swedish librarians, have nominated their own authors and the world was invited to vote throughout July and August. Four very diverse finalists have been selected Maurice Conde, Haruki Murakami, Kim Thuy, and Neil Gaiman, and the alternative Nobel Prize winner will be announced on the 12th of October. Finally, in what I think may be a first in this podcast, an author has had their award removed. Laura Ingalls Wilder, the author of Little House on the Prairie, has had her name stripped from the U.S. Association for Library Service to Children's laura ingalls wilder award the award has been renamed the children's literacy legacy award and the association has explained that their decision is based on racist stereotypes about both african-american people and native american people which are found throughout the author's books and they have stressed that they are an organization committed to all children so just one book discovery this month and a bit of cheeky early harry potter news a woman who bought a copy of Harry Potter at a train station over 20 years ago has sold the original print-run copy, of which there were only 500, for over £56,000, which is about $100,000 Australian. Oh, I would be so torn between holding onto it and selling it. What a treasure. So, some very exciting new releases. Jasper Ford has a new book that is just out called Early Riser. I'm a bit disappointed that it's not a sequel to his book Shades of Grey which is different to Fifty Shades of Grey and a bajillion times better but I'm still excited to see what he's come up with. You might remember that I actually met Jasper Ford which, uh, which I talked about way back in episode one of Lost the Plot. Anyway he is a hilarious writer and I'm really looking forward to checking out his new book. Another exciting new release is Australian graphic novelist Sean Tan, who has released a book called Tales from the Inner City. I absolutely loved his book Tales from Outer Suburbia, and I just finished another new one of his called Cicada, which was pure genius, so I can't wait for this one when it's out in October. Aussie author Graham Simpson has announced the third book in his Don Tillman series called The Rosy Result. This book, which picks up the story from The Rosie Project and The Rosie Effect, is set quite a few years after the last two, and Don is faced with some brand new family challenges that make him face some of his own struggles. In the last episode, I mentioned that it was 100 years since May Gibbs' children's book Snuggle Pot and Cuddlepie Pie was first published. To celebrate, a special centenary edition of the book has been released, and it looks lovely I actually think that there's a matching edition of another Australian classic the magic pudding another exciting release is a book by the blogger behind the well-read cookie a book for decorating cookies inspired by books the books become cookies and the cookies have become a book the author Lauren Chater has announced that her book will be released in October now in anti book release news the creators behind the comic book series Saga have announced that the series is going on a year long hiatus. However, if you've been buying the volumes, like me, Volume 9 will still be released in September, containing issues 49 to 54. Now, there are only two adaptations I want to talk about this episode, and both of them are Harry Potter related. The first incredible piece of news is that the trailer has dropped for the second Fantastic Beasts of Where to Find Them film, The Crimes of Grindelwald. And oh my gosh, it looks so great. I am completely on board with Jude Law as Dumbledore. I am so excited to see flashbacks to a young Newt Scamander in school. There's some older lady with giant lizard cat creatures. I love it. I love everything about it. I can't wait to go see it when it's out in November. And then, and then, the pre-sale tickets to the two-part stage production of Harry Potter and the Cursed Child in Melbourne 2019 went live. It was an absolute roller coaster. I waited in the, the virtual lobby for an hour before the tickets finally went on sale and I had 6,000 people ahead of me in the queue. I couldn't believe it. I was frantically messaging my friend, trying to figure out what dates are we going to book. The queue was creeping along, but finally... I bought my tickets for a weekend in March, and I heard stories of people who had 30,000 people ahead of them in the queue, oh my gosh. So continuing on with the Harry Potter theme, it's been a while since a JK Rowling Twitter controversy, but this time she made the news as troll-er rather than troll e. First, on the person she trolled, Donald Trump wrote a tweet that read as follows. After having written many best-selling books and somewhat priding myself on my ability to write, it should be noted that the fake news constantly likes to pour over my tweets looking for a mistake. I capitalise certain words for emphasis, not because they should be capitalised. Quote, Donald Trump. So, Rowling's first tweet in response was just a full page of laughter, interrupted only by her typing the words, Draws breath. Her second tweet then pointed out that Trump had used the wrong kind of pour, writing pour like what you would do with syrup rather than pour like you do over a book, before then filling the rest of her tweet with more laughter. Her third tweet pointed out that Trump's ghostwriter has spoken to the press, thus indicating that perhaps. He's not that good a writer at all because he doesn't even write his own books. Followed by, she followed that by even more laughter. And then finally she finished with wipes eyes, tries to control breathing. Seriously, at real, Donald Trump is the greatest writer on earth, making sure to use the wrong kind of great and to capitalize appropriately. Back in Australia, a big, book controversy that took place in July was the news that the new 2019 Queensland curriculum for an English course called Essential English won't require students to read a single book. The Daily Mail, so, you know, grain of salt here, but the Daily Mail published a scathing article focusing on parts of the curriculum that included things like analyzing DJ playlists and street art Unsurprisingly, the Daily Mail's article was somewhat exaggerated. So, Essential English is described in the course outline as, Essential English is an applied subject suited to students who are interested in pathways beyond Year 12 that lead to tertiary studies, vocational education, or work. A course of study in Essential English promotes open-mindedness, imagination, critical awareness, and intellectual flexibility. Skills that prepare students for local and global citizenship, and for a lifelong learning across a wide range of contexts, which is a pretty, you know, a pretty solid object for the course. Anyway, so each of the four units of the course requires students to study at least one complete text, which could include a book, a film, a graphic novel, etc., a media text, and an Australian text. So there is potential for books to be read, but surprisingly there are quite a few grains of truth in the daily mails article reading books in this course is not mandatory under the curriculum however i think there are two things that it's important to note firstly it is up to teachers to choose texts within the parameters set by the curriculum so teachers could very well select books there's nothing preventing them from selecting books within those above categories and secondly i think it and i think this is particularly important At least one of the Australian texts studies over the four units must be by an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander writer. Anyway speaking of school books it is time for us to chat to this episode's very very special guest my grandma Barbara June Fletcher a retired school librarian and teacher who is going to talk to us about school libraries. So we're here today with Barbara June Fletcher also known as June. She was a teacher, a librarian, she's a mother, she's been a farmer, a wife, a horse enthusiast, and she's my grandmother. And June, or grandma, is going to talk to us today about being a school librarian in a rural town. Thanks so much for being on the podcast, grandma. Thank you, I'm harrod
1: So my first question is, how did you become a librarian? Well, in a roundabout way, I guess. I was very young when I went off to university, coming from Coffs Harbour. I went to the New England University College, part of Sydney University, and I did well at school, but I must admit I've never learned how to study. Mm. But when I got to the college, I had a great time, I played all the sports, I was in the university reviews I did attend the lectures but I really had no idea how to go about doing tertiary study I think that's something a lot of people in our family have struggled with
0: by <laughs> the time we get to university <laughs>
1: just posted yeah. Oh, it depended on your memory
0: some... yeah that's right that's right
1: but apparently I got 49% in all my subjects, (laughs) and if I'd got a 50 in one of them, I would have passed all of them. Oh, no. (laughs) So, having got this result, I picked myself up, eventually, and decided... At that time, I was on a scholarship, because my parents didn't have money to send me to university. And you were quite young, weren't you? I was very young. You were 16? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh my
0: God. <laughs> what do you mean you weren't excelling at university at age 16, <laughs> Grandma?
1: <laughs> and so I went to Sydney and lived with my father's aunts mm. and got a job. My first job was at a technical library, which was a bit of a commute to go and work, but at least I was being paid. <laughs> I could pay my great aunts for living with them and I could pay my university fees and get to university. But mind you, it was not easy to work from nine till five and get to the evening classes at Sydney University. Mm. But We did it, or I did it. And after a year, I was lucky enough to get a job at the CSIRO, the Master Animal Health Laboratory, in the library in the university grounds beside the vet school. Oh, fabulous. So it made travel a lot easier. I could go straight to lectures after work. Still didn't often get home till 11 o'clock or something. Oh, my gosh. But it just felt so much easier, it didn't seem to matter. Yeah. And while I was at the McMaster Lab, I did my preliminary library exams, as they were called, while I was working and going to lectures. And that was good because you were working in the library and you you really were applying what you were learning. Yeah. Then, when I finished my degree, and it took me a little longer than if I'd gone straight through, my, I really was sick of Sydney, and the opportunity to come came up for me to go to Murbeen, which is near Mildura, for three months because the very nice young lady working in the Murbeen Library had no library experience and she came and worked in my job in Sydney. So you did sort of a trade? And we just did a swap. Yep. I was happy to get out of the city. She needed the experience in the library with someone, because in Melbourne she was the only librarian, there was no one there with her.
0: Oh, and she didn't have library experience? No. Oh my gosh. Which my... makes
1: it a bit tricky. That is a little high? <laughs> <laughs> so I was happy to do that. Then I went back to Sydney. And sure, I settled in and I was all right. But then I was persuaded to take a job at Mildura High School where they didn't have a librarian. And some of the teachers felt there should be. So the principal at Mildura High School employed me as a librarian and I went back to work in Mildura. Mm -hmm. But after a year or so being pregnant and obviously marrying first (laughs) in those days, And then having a child, I did not realise that I should have resigned as soon as I was pregnant, and I didn't know that, so I worked till I was about seven months pregnant and then resigned. Mm. And then after having my first child, I was asked, would I help out in the Mildura Town Library? Mm. Because the librarian had left. Now, there was a staff there of about four, and I did work afternoons while my first child was having her afternoon nap. I didn't take her to the library with me, I had someone mind her. And that lasted for quite some time until I was pregnant with my second child, in which case I stopped. But then after then I was back working the afternoons again with my second child being small and fitting in between naps and feeds and things, just in the afternoon for a few hours, Mm -hmm. which at least kept me motivated. Yeah, (laughs) got you out of the house. (laughs) Got me out of the house. But after that, I stopped, and when my third child was born, I certainly wasn't working. But Mildura High School was co-ed, but Mildura Technical School was a school of over a thousand boys. Wow, enormous school. It was a big school and I was asked when my youngest child was three, would I go and work now full-time. I was a bit reluctant, but I said, all right, let's give it a month and see. But when I found the child was having obvious signs of, what do we call it these days, anxiety, separation, anxiety or something, I don't know. She was with a woman who was very kind and had other children, but she seemed not happy, was waking up at night and I went to the principal after a month and said, I've really enjoyed being here, but I can't keep on coming, it's not worth it for the sake of my child. And would you believe, he said to me, why don't you bring her with you. Oh, unbelievable.
0: I, 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 that must have just been it was unheard one, of. It uh, was it, unheard yeah.
1: of. It was unheard of, but it was great. Yeah. And being in the library, I had my own office in the middle of the library. Mm-hmm. She had her own little desk. <laughs> over a thousand boys in the school, which never made me anxious about her safety. In fact, they're more likely to look after her than to let someone do anything with her. She'd ride her tricycle up and down the corridor <laughs> when I was really busy. She'd be into to the secretary's office playing on the anime. machine. <laughs> she'd go into the principal's office and talk to him. <laughs> she just Fitted into school life age three wonderfully and we had a very happy time. I was happy, she was happy, yep, the whole family was happy. <laughs> Sounds like the school was pretty happy? And the school was very happy. <laughs> and you know, it was a good arrangement. The only thing that was a bit sour. People were saying to my husband, I can't believe you allow your children, your wife to work. And, of course, that uh, was, <laughs> didn't go down too well. And he used to use the answer, she's not very happy at home polishing the doorknobs. <laughs> <laughs> I used to be really annoyed when women said to me, I cannot believe your husband allows you to work. Oh, my God. But I learned not to comment. (laughs) So there was our life at the Mildura Technical School. I just can't
0: believe anyone would have said that. Oh.
1: About about either
0: who, who knew you or who knew... So we used to call my grandfather Sir or he knew Sir. I just,
1: I mean allows you to work it just <laughs> <laughs> just beggars belief doesn't it but it was very common attitude it really was yeah. a very common attitude women went to work a because they needed to financially mm. it was and we certainly could do with the extra money Well, with very little to, kids yeah to emotionally need to was never considered yeah but obviously you were
0: in quite hot demand because you had a lot of people asking for you Uh, they all asked me to go to work
1: yeah and they must have been a bit ahead of their time to ask me
0: yeah but I mean they obviously (laughs) knew you'd been you know you'd you'd been educated in Sydney and you had a lot of experience already by that stage yeah yeah brilliant and so so you're at Mildura with three kids and then how did you so how did you come about um moving to
1: Broadford well Jim was um principal at this time at Redcliffs. Okay. But for some reason or other, I cannot recall the the thing. The school... Something happened and he had to apply for another school. Oh, okay. So we came, we looked at it and we decided Broadford was pretty close to Melbourne, but not as close as we now think. Um, And it was one of the few schools he applied for three or four, and he was appointed as the headmaster, as he was then called, at Broadford mm-hmm. High School. And obviously I came with him. Mm-hmm. So I was transferred from the technical school division to the high school division. <laughs> <laughs> as a, And during this time when I was at Mildura Tech, I did my extra exams for the Life association. It a fully recognised professional associate of the Library Association of Australia. Yeah. So it was a bit of a shock to the system when we got to Broadford and I was considered the school librarian because I was the headmaster's wife.
0: (laughs) Just a little bit of special treatment, nothing to do with all of your professional experience, qualifications and memberships. Oh Oh, my goodness, Grandma. really, it
1: was quite different. I didn't, most of the time I didn't bother to explain, I was properly qualified, a university degree, all my library association exams and professional membership surely qualified me. Mm. I did during that time do an extra course of teacher training mm. at Monash. Yeah. <laughs> but I was also not only running the library, I was teaching.
0: Yeah gosh and raising three kids as well (laughs) always been very busy grandma so when you got to the school library at broadford high school which is i think it's now called broadford secondary college isn't it yeah so when when you got to the school library we came in
1: 1969
0: yep and how was how was the
1: library when you found it i was in a state of shock (laughs) for quite some time fortunately jim went to work very quickly and applied for a Commonwealth grant of, I think it might have been $4,000 or something, to buy some reference books. So at least I filled up the reference part of what I considered was important Mm -hmm. for the school library. I also bought some non-fiction and some fiction books, but most of the books were there. Broadwood at this time had the paper mill where they did the recycling. And a lot of the books on the library shelves came from the recycling centre of of the thing.
0: So they just fished them out of the recycle bin. They're like,
1: here's a a book, the school might need it. And the school obviously did need it. The school did need it. And I could have the date wrong and I will have written it down somewhere. But I think the encyclopedia was 1938. Right, so this was 1969, <laughs> 31 years out of
0: date, missing a few, you know, key historical events in the middle.
1: <laughs> but I was a bit disturbed that the, there was not much reading amongst the children. Mm. I mean, there are obviously some families whose parents had read to their children and saw that they were reading. I don't mean to belittle the whole town, that's not what I'm trying to do. But they just didn't consider reading a very important occupation.
0: Yeah, well, and obviously, I mean, because at the time there was no town library, was there? No, there there was no town library. And the school library obviously was a little bit um, (laughs)
1: under-resourced. Under-resourced. Is that a polite way to put it? (laughs) But we did, between Jim and myself, we did work together, and he got Victorian Education Department approval, to open the school library which in this time we got a few collection of new books and important books and non important books but reading material and also some very young reading material young children's books and things yes, I had yes. in the library. Um, we, we had the permission then to open the school library to the public one day a week after school for a couple of hours, which I did for many, many years. Now, this came from my reading and studying when I was studying children's libraries and children's literature for my obviously unnecessary exams. (laughs) (laughs) Um, When I realised that in Canada, some of their small towns had opened the school libraries to the public mm. this is digressing a little bit but not long after that when they built the school assembly hall jim and the architect added a squash court that could also be used by the public
0: oh really
1: yeah. <laughs> uh, i know those squash
0: courts because we used to when we did rehearsals for our yeah. m- at my primary school play and just
1: put a stage in this yeah, yeah 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 yeah. oh there you go I didn't realize Sarah done that yeah so there we are now where are we back to the so library. back so back
0: to the library so when you were the librarian at Broadford you actually were also teaching at the time right I was teaching at so the time. were you so if you were teaching and the librarian I'm assuming unless you're a time
1: lord which you may well be you weren't always necessarily in the library. I did have some a retired infant school mistress helping me part-time okay. and sometimes she was in the library but she was only part-time. Mm-hmm. So without anybody's permission <laughs> <laughs> I chose to leave the library unlocked, mm. taught the pupils how to borrow their own books I'd set up a borrowing system that they'd never been before
0: they didn't even have a borrowing system in the
1: school library probably
0: oh my god! no Um, wonder you were in a state of shock
1: (laughs) well yes but obviously you could see a challenge yeah (laughs) but the the most of the pupils were very responsible and I knew there'll be books that would be removed without permission Mm -hmm. and never be seen again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I accepted that fact. A lot of people didn't. But then, if you lock it up, you're still going to lose books. Yeah, people stuff them in their backpack, you know. They do all sorts of things. So I did teach library classes, but I also taught maths classes, Mm -hmm. which I really enjoyed. At one stage, I had seventy children in Year Seven, but another teacher who was not a maths teacher used to help me supervise and check that they were getting their work right.
0: Well, an entire class of seventy children. Yeah.
1: <laughs> oh there was gosh. a great shortage of teachers. Oh my
0: gosh! Do you know? I, just to, just to, as a bit of an interlude, when I was in Grade Six, we had um, at rural primary school. We had forty kids in our class, and it, we just didn't have. There was just no room, you know, and we'd had a lot of kids. I think who've maybe moved to the town recently. We just kept getting more and more people, and um, I wrote a letter to the minister for education. I can't remember if it was the state minister or the or the the federal minister. You know, obviously, obviously, you know, this is started off a lifelong passion of writing angry letters to ministers. But um but I wrote a letter letter to the minister complaining about the class sizes and I got a letter back and first of all it was addressed to Mr. Ang Lodwick, which worked <laughs> me no end. And second of all, um he had the goal to tell me that I'd counted up the numbers wrong and there weren't that many pe- kids in my class. Dude <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm like if I'm like, It makes you think you're like, well surely if a grade six kid is writing to me complaining about the classes and you're suggesting that they've got the numbers wrong maybe there might be a problem with the maths teaching <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, my God.
1: God.
0: oh it's probably one of those kids oh well that you know these children aren't actually children so the number isn't actually 40 but anyway so that's amazing a class of 70 We you teaching them in the hall? No, no,
1: no, it, was, it must have been in a double classroom. It yeah. It must have been doors that opened. Yeah, 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 no, that makes But sense. the teacher who was helping me was a delightful teacher who taught French and she'd been teaching for a long time. And mm-hmm. We were pretty strict because we 70 kids and we were 70-year sevens. Oh, goodness. You have to be. Yeah. But at least I wasn't doing it all by myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But anyway, that's beside the point.
0: Now. So, so you opened up the library to the public. Yes. And then, um, and and so you and Sir stayed in the region, and then Sir retired, and then and then you moved to Seymour. Seymour. So, um, how long was the
1: after after you left Broadford? Was the school library still the town library? Yes, it was. But can I go back to the reading habits of the people in Broadford? Yes, absolutely, we absolutely. It was a bit of an eye-opener to me. Mind you, I came from a family that we didn't read much. Really? I'm surprised by that. Yeah, we didn't. Um, There wasn't much around in the house to read. Yeah, Okay. But I did firmly believe that people believed what was available to read, and you had to get them motivated to read by looking at what was available to read yeah that's right so i guess it
0: in broadford if there's not books available in a local library or in people's
1: homes but even or, at school yeah or in school um one one of the advantage from the recycle well we've got a lot of magazines like the australian women's weekly and things and i allowed them into the library kids can read them i let them read anything that was there yeah there was criticism from the one of the, some of the teachers, not when I was there to reply, that I was wasting money on buying the woman's Weekly.
0: <laughs> wasting money <laughs> <life>. by receiving <laughs> donations from the local paper mill. Oh,
1: you're but so no, frivolous, I didn't I didn't <laughs> even bother to reply to that because what's the point? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Oh, goodness me. But look, it was very slow, but you could see the difference. Yeah, yeah. I might add, our three girls had to go to that high school with their father, the headmaster, and their mother also in the school when... Jim just said... If our children don't go to this high school, the town thinks it's not good enough.
0: Yeah, that must have been a hard balance to strike because I think it would be hard going to a school where both your parents work. Sure, it was hard on the kids. But also, it I, I can see I can see that it wouldn't look good if you don't send well, your lot, kids. Most to...
1: people didn't send their children. Yeah, right. To the high school there, but he worked. He figured. He said, all right, it might be hard, it'll make them stronger. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know whether it made them stronger or not, but they are certainly strong women. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anyone can dispute that. <laughs> yes, but, and we did slowly see the reading and the academic achievement mm. improved out of all sight. And that was a great... A great feeling. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah, yeah, because it's funny. I think things have changed a bit now, but definitely, certainly, when I was um, a young kid living here, Broadford did feel a long way from the city. It felt like a re- really small country, rural town. You know, a lot of a lot of kids whose families, you know, didn't have much money. And
1: well, they were, they were certainly considered a a working family and that's fine but the lower the lower salary scales
0: yeah that's right, and a lot of i think a lot of um you know a lot of people tied into the the paper mill for example like and and that more industrial kind of work and the you know farmers' kids and stuff like that as well yeah mm. Yeah, whereas I, th- I feel with like these days, it's sort of, I don't know, I, it just doesn't feel that far away from, from Melbourne anymore. Well,
1: there were probably about two trains a day then or something. Is to that Melbourne. All? Well, maybe three. I don't remember. There weren't many. Yeah, right. Whereas now they run constantly to get a lot of people to work, Melbourne to work. That's, and I think that's a big difference. A
0: lot of people work in Melbourne now, whereas back then I think a lot of people worked locally. Locally, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah so... So you were
1: So how long were you guys at Broadford for? Sixty nine oh. to eighty one.
0: Okay, so about twelve years, and then um, and then Sir retired, and then you went to Seymour. Yes,
1: I didn't feel it was right to be hanging around with a new principal coming in. And yeah, we had a few extreme ideas. Like when we were at the high school, but at, at Broadford, a lot of young people weren't interested in sport, so we started or gym started an activities afternoon of a Wednesday afternoon mm. where the really studious ones could join mm. the chess club or go out and play sport or we even had a, bold, a gold panning group really we used to take them out to Reedy Creek oh to pan yes for yes, gold. yes just outside activities bushwalking one go. of the one of the funniest things that happened: the bushwalking gro- group lost the bus driver. What? <laughs> oh my gosh!
0: Uh, uh, How did they
1: manage that? We're never quite sure, because the man in charge of the bushwalking group was not the. <laughs> he was a very good teacher, but he was not the best organizer you would ever know. Yeah, clearly not very outdoorsy. Yeah, very outdoorsy. Oh, he was very outdoorsy. Yeah, but I think he went off in one direction and when they didn't come back in time, I think the bus driver went off looking for them. Oh, no. and, And between them and, of course, there was much panic when the bus wasn't back at school to take the school bus travellers. but everyone Broadfin. was thinking, oh, no, is it picnic and hanging rock in Broadfoot <laughs> or something like that? And in that. retrospect, that's one of the funniest things I can remember about our activities after. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my god! Not many people leave, lose the bus driver. No. You might lose no. a few kids, but you don't often lose the bus driver. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, things like that. And also, the boys had to learn cooking. Oh, excellent. Because Sir was quite a good cook, wasn't he? Yeah. Oh, well, maybe. (laughs) Um, They all had to learn typing, the boys and girls, you know. And this was before computers. Yeah. So by the 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 time the the computers came in, those students and boys were Mm multi-skilled. In fact, one of them I know got a job because he could use (laughs) Oh, really? Yeah. Anyway, yes, but no it was long before (laughs) we had gender equality and we don't have that but before it was considered appropriate for boys to (laughs) tie and girls to do woodwork. I've still got a a chopping board your mother made in the woodwork class (laughs) and how about the the coffee table i made after school in the evening class for woodwork that the school provided the <laughs> evening class
0: <laughs> i didn't realize he made a coffee table
1: oh sure to you that. yeah oh good still good. got it well, that sounds good
0: so i guess back onto back onto libraries so after so after you left Broadfet and you went on to Seymour, yeah the, the it the, was a promotion to go to Seymour. It was a promotion to go to Seymour, but which is a. For those people who aren't familiar with rural Victoria, Seymour's just a little bit further up the Hume. But um, the the Broadford Secondary College Library was still effectively the town library. Yes. And so it was quite some time before. Yes, the new
1: principal, I guess we hadn't thought about that. we were too busy occupied with other things. The new principal took several years and really and realised it was time the Shire did their job. And he...
0: Oh, so he put the fire under the Shire to actually to get actually around to get getting a, a proper library. Yeah. Right, okay. And there was great that's money really, available. That's really actually quite late in the game. Very. So, so, it was in the 80s. Yeah, because so we moved... My family moved back to Broadford in 95. Um, and and that that little... The the Broadford Library was this tiny, tiny little office space on the corner of a block. Tiny. It had, you know, one and a half rooms, basically, run by one librarian who had one desk. And um, we used to go there after school sometimes um, when we were waiting for our parents to pick us up, which um, I was saying to Grandma earlier, really is frowned upon these days. Like, oh, don't leave your children in the library. It's not a childcare center, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like... (laughs) What rubbish... What, what possible mayhem are children going to get up to flipping through books in a library? Oh, my goodness me, you know. And it wasn't like we were there for hours and hours. We'd be there for, you know, maybe half an hour while mum got back from work and, you know, picking off picking the books and negotiating with the librarian about which ones in the next series she was going to order in for me and stuff like that. So, gosh, so that that hadn't been there for very long.
1: Wow, there you go. There you go, gosh, Grandma. You guys I was really... a bit complacent about pushing the shower. I felt I <laughs> had <laughs> other things <to laughs> yeah, <do. laughs> had a few other things going on. Oh my gosh well they and they probably didn't really think well, they think they were quite happy to, for us to continue with the thousand dollars a year or something to subsidize some books or something. Yeah. Did they have the mobile
0: library going back then? No not not it brought it. They didn't even have the mobile library coming to Bradford. They had nothing. nothing. My gosh. Because what was the population back then? What, like 3,000 or something? Two, 3,000? Two, Two. Yeah.
1: Good. But, but pupils come from a lot, quite a distance south.
0: Yeah. Yeah, because Kilmore
1: um, didn't have a public no, high school. No. And Whittlesey didn't. Oh, back then they didn't have one? No, and I think they came from as far as the Plenty and...
0: Yeah, okay. I think okay.
1: the Palong people went to Seymour, but the Clombenane... Yeah, and out... Wondong? And Wondong, and out Jewelway, Tayak, yes, Strathcric, They yeah. all came into Broadway. Yeah, yeah, right. And in fact one family used to live further out than you at Tayak and they used to walk to school every day. You are joking. No no. How long did it take to walk to school? I don't know, I never asked. But there was a Dutch family. or the parents were Dutch and they had thirteen children and they walked. Thirteen kids? (laughs) Walking to school? Well they didn't all walk to at the one time. I mean (laughs) they were Oh,
0: my gosh. Just for a bit of perspective, this that's like a 10, 15-minute drive at least out of yeah. town. And I'm assuming the road probably wasn't as good
1: probably back not. then. Probably not. But they used to walk to school.
0: So, uh, yeah, I'm
1: assuming no school bus. <laughs> <laughs> there wasn't a school bus. <laughs> oh, my gosh. My gosh, that this came is just like blowing my I can't heart. remember what age they used to walk to school, but I do know that, that some of them used to walk in from out there.
0: It sounds like it was a lot... Harder for kids to get education and to be interested in education. Oh, it, it 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 regardless of whether they were interested, just getting them in the in the gate. Goodness me. So, I guess um you sort of hinted a little bit earlier that um you know literacy and interest in reading was a big problem that you you faced when you were setting up the the library. But, you know, what do you I guess what do you think is the best way to try and boost kids literacy and encourage
1: kids to read there's got to be something around the house for them to read whether it's the newspaper whether it is anything printed Mm -hmm. magazines comics anything it's got to be there for them to read to learn to read just available to pick up to pick up yep and things and one of my young Mm -hmm. friends well, he's not so young anymore, a very successful jockey. I used to watch him at age four, learning to read from the newspaper, mm. reading the racing form. Ah, oh, there you go. Taught himself to read before I went to school, <laughs> reading the racing form. There you go.
0: Well, I've heard a saying, actually, because, um, you know, people often ask me, they're like, oh, you know, I'm, I just don't really like... Reading these kinds of books and blah blah blah. And and a saying that I heard is that if you don't like what you read,
1: read what you like. Read what yeah, you read what you're interested in. Absolutely. And it's no good telling me boys aren't they'd like to read. When that happens they haven't been allowed to read the motorbike magazines or the motorcar magazines or whatever other woodworking magazines or stupid boys stories it does not matter
0: yep so it doesn't Just matter what they're reading as long as they're long reading As
1: long as they're reading and exactly. I used to get really cross when they these expert children's librarians were banning Enid Blyton not because not it was black but because it was not considered good literature I don't really, care. I don't really? Care. oh my goodness if, if someone reads enough and well enough they can decide what appeals to them and what's good literature yeah we don't have we don't need people telling five and six year olds they can only read good literature no wonder if they're turned off yeah right that's my theory anyway, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> I think it's a great theory. You know, I hear a lot of people who
0: are quite um, disparaging about graphic novels because, oh, there's pictures, so it's not proper literature. It but is. You've it is think. absolutely. Well, and do you know? You do you know that a graphic novel has been um, nominated for the Man Booker
1: Prize this year? Oh, that's wonderful.
0: You know, and a graphic novel, one of one of my favourites. It's called Digger by this woman called Ursula Vernon. Won the um, the hugo award a few years ago she hadn't even published it in a paper book she just published it online it was that excellent it won a hugo award you know yeah i agree i agree it doesn't matter what people are reading you know not
1: not everyone's going to be wanting to study literature at university Exactly, exactly let them just enjoy reading and get from it what they want and need exactly and if they're getting exposed to new words while they're doing it well that's brilliant it's better than not being exposed to it. <laughs> exactly exactly mm. all right well thank you very much grandma that was brilliant well thank you and I've yeah. digress a bit <laughs> it's okay
0: that's okay it was great it's really nice to hear a little bit more about I guess the history of the town that we've lived in for so long
1: we have, haven't we? Yeah, we have. 69 we, have. we can here. No, I gosh. can hit. Yeah, goodness me, that's nearly 50 years next year.
0: Here we go. Well, thank you so much. All right. Well, enjoy. Thank you. That was my Grandma June Fletcher. If you want to find out more about the history of Broadford, Grandma actually edited a book called Broadford, A Regional History in 1975 while she was still teaching. There is a copy available at the National Library of Australia, but the book itself unfortunately is currently out of print. I did contact the publishers and unfortunately at this stage there aren't any plans to reprint it in the near future, so if you would like to find a copy, get in touch with your local secondhand bookseller or have a look online. I managed to pick up the pace again a little in July and got through five books, though I am still woefully behind my now seemingly very ambitious goal of 80 books for my Goodreads challenge for 2018. Two of the books I really enjoyed were Book of Colours and the Passengers, which those were the books I interviewed the authors Robin Cadwallader and Eleanor Limprecht about. I also really enjoyed a review copy I received from an Australian author. The book, a memoir about walking from Queensland to Sydney, is called Footnotes, by Benjamin Allman, and it was a really fascinating story about a last-ditch attempt to pursue your dreams. Alright readers, that's it from me. This episode was a little late, but I will be back before you know it on another book-themed topic with lots of book news and book reviews. If you want to support this podcast and help to keep it on air, check out the Patreon page where you can support Lost the Plot for as little as a dollar an episode. You can also follow the Tinted Edges Facebook page to keep up to date with upcoming book events. You can leave a review on iTunes or you can subscribe to the Tinted Edges website. Thanks so much for listening.